Well, good morning, church family. Uh, during our Lord's earthly ministry, he established two ordinances for the local church. The first is baptism. Baptism is when a new believer in Christ is publicly immersed into a pool of water. And in doing so, that believer is publicly identifying with Christ, and they are officially being welcomed into his church. Then the second ordinance is called communion, or the Lord's Supper. That's the one we're observing today. And at the Lord's Supper, we take a little bit of bread and a little bit of grape juice, And we partake of these elements together. And in so doing, we are affirming our ongoing union with Christ and His church. The scriptures tell us there are many spiritual blessings associated with this supper. First of all, we're reminded of Christ's dying love for us. This can only serve to deepen our commitment to Him. But then secondly, the shared experience of partaking of the elements as a church family ought to stir up the bonds of love that we feel toward one another. And then finally, it should also build our anticipation for Christ's return. For the Apostle Paul said that every time we partake of these elements together, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. So at the supper, we are looking back at our Savior's sacrifice, but then we're looking ahead to His return. Many spiritual blessings associated with partaking together. However, I should also warn you that there are spiritual dangers associated with partaking in an unworthy manner. The Apostle Paul explains this in his first letter to the Corinthian church. There in the church of Corinth, they had a situation where some Christians were coming early to the supper, and they were gorging themselves on all of the elements, so that when other members came later, there was nothing left. The Apostle Paul explained that they were making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. And he said to them that that this is why some of their members were getting sick. Some were even dying. See, the Lord has no tolerance for the abuse of this supper. And so at this supper, we are called to examine ourselves, to make sure that we are worthy to partake. And that means asking ourselves questions like these. First, have I come to Christ in true Repentant faith. Am I his disciple? Am I a vital part of the church of Christ? Am I clinging to any unconfessed sins, sins that I need to give up before I partake? Is everything well between me and my brothers and sisters in Christ, or are there broken relationships in my church family that I need to heal? And am I approaching the supper with the reverence that it is due. Now, friends, if you can ask yourselves these questions and, and your conscience is clear on these matters, then certainly we invite you to partake of the elements with us, regardless of whether you are yet a member of Grace Baptist Church. Of course, you understand perfection is not required, otherwise none could partake. But a clear conscience that so far as, as our conscience tells us, we are well with God and our fellow believers. However, if this morning your conscience is condemning you because you know that you are not a disciple of Christ, or because there are sins that you are harboring, that you are unwilling to give up, 
then I would ask you to simply allow the elements to pass by this morning. Observe the supper, but do not partake. Instead, use the time that you're given today to make things right. Pray to God. Receive Him through Christ in faith. Determine that you will make things right with your brother or sister in Christ. Repent of those sins that you have been clinging to. But friends, whether you will be partaking this morning or simply observing while others partake, we want you to know we are so grateful for your attendance today. We're thrilled that you have come. And we trust this will be a spiritually profitable hour for you as you are reminded of important gospel truths as you look within and deal with any issues that you find, we trust that this will be a great experience. And friends, as we all prepare ourselves for this service today, let's spend some time in contemplation and prayer while the instruments play. So now let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 836. This morning we're going back to the very beginning of our Lord's public ministry. Allow me to read the opening verses for us as we get started here. Mark's Gospel begins, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And then the start of verse 4, John appeared. That is, John the Baptist. And what Mark is doing in the opening verses of his book is setting the historical context for Jesus' public ministry. You see, when God first created the world, he created it in absolute holiness, just like himself. And he created humanity in holiness. But the scriptures tell us that humanity exercised its own free will and fell from that holy state. As a result of their action, they and all their posterity, which is to say the whole human race, fell under the curse of sin and death. And it happened very early on in human history, even there in the Garden of Eden. But friends, just as soon as humanity had sinned, God was there already with a word of hope. There in Genesis 3, verse 16, God came to Adam and Eve, and he said to them, You have ruined everything. You have made terrible consequences for yourselves and your posterity. But then God held out this promise. He said, But I will send a Messiah into this world. I will. And he will fix everything that you have broken. He will make atonement for your sins. He will reverse all of the effects of sin's curse. He's going to conquer death itself. And then throughout the Old Testament scriptures, as they develop, we have more and more promises about this coming Messiah. We're told about where he would be born. We're told about what his life and and ministry would be like. All of these details about this coming Savior to build anticipation for him and so that people would recognize him when he finally came. 
Finally, we, came, we come to the end of the Old Testament scriptures, to the words of Isaiah the prophet, and then to the words of Malachi, also quoted at the, the bottom here of these opening verses. And Isaiah and Malachi said, Here is how you will know that Messiah's coming is imminent. God is going to send a forerunner. He'll be a prophet like the prophets of old, and he will come to prepare God's people for the Messiah's arrival. When you see this forerunner burst on the scene and he conducts his ministry of preparing people for Christ, that's when you know that he is coming. He is right here. And then you look again at Mark chapter 1, verse 4, and it says, And John, that is John the Baptist, appeared. Mark is making clear that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that last Old Testament promise. He is the forerunner of Messiah. He's the one sent by God to prepare God's people to receive Christ when he's finally publicly revealed. And we see John the Baptist's ministry here in verse 4. It says, He came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he's, he's receiving people for baptism, and then he's also proclaiming the need to repent of sins, to trust in God, to trust in this coming Messiah. We see the public response to his ministry, verse 5. It says, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So the forerunner's ministry was having great success. It seemed as if all Judea was coming to the Jordan River, coming to hear John the Baptist, and then responding with this baptism of repentance. And then verse 6, we're told what John looked like. It says, John was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So, in other words, he looked just like the prophet Elijah. Mark is establishing that John the Baptist was right in the line of the Old Testament prophets. He was just like Elijah and Isaiah and Malachi, just like all the others. And he had a ministry similar to theirs, but he was also more blessed than all of them. Because it was his unique task to prepare for Messiah's coming and then to tell everyone when he came, there he is, there's the one you've been waiting for, for millennia after millennia. He's come, he's going to save us, he's going to make atonement for us. But you know what's interesting about John the Baptist is that at this point, he did not even know precisely who that Messiah would be. He knew his, he was going to be revealed and that John would know him when he was. He still wasn't exactly certain who it would be. And so in John 1.33, we have these words from, from John. He writes, The Lord said to me, quote, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, John was just conducting his ministry out by the Jordan River, and one day the Lord came to John and said this to John. He said, John, one day you're going to be out baptizing and preaching, and a man is going to present himself to you, and you're going to baptize him. And when you do, you are going to receive a visible sign from heaven that this is the one 
This is the one promised all those years in the Old Testament time. This is the one you've been preparing God's people to receive. That's how he would know. And so I imagine John the Baptist conducting his ministry there, baptizing all those who came, but always wondering in the back of his mind, when is Messiah going to make himself appear? Who is it going to be? He was as excited as everyone else to find out who the Savior was. And then finally, my friends, that long-awaited day came. Let's look at verse 9. It says, now in those days, that is, in those days when John was baptizing and preaching and waiting for Messiah and preparing people for Messiah, in those days, who came to him? Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Friends, these words are so simple but so profound. The Old Testament had promised him. John had been preparing people for him. Now he was finally here. (laughs) The humble son of a carpenter living in Nazareth. He is the one that everybody has been waiting for. He was also more than just a carpenter's son. He was God's own son who in eternity past had made a pact with his father to secure our redemption. And now he was here on the earth, robed in human flesh. And after living in near total obscurity for the first 30 years of his life, now he was ready to go public with his identity. He was ready to begin that public ministry. And so Jesus left his hometown of Nazareth and he came to the Jordan River to present himself to John. Friends, in doing so, we see Jesus' determination to complete the work that his father had given to him. He was ready to be our Savior. He was ready to take on that role and all that it would entail to give his life as a sacrificial atonement for our sins. That's the significance of Jesus' presentation to John. He was saying, yes, I am ready and willing to take this role on. I'm ready to start my ministry. I'm ready to be their champion, to be their redeemer. Friends, let's sing of this wonderful truth together. So in presenting himself to John, we see Jesus' willingness to begin his public ministry, to be our Redeemer. Now let's look at verse 9 and see a second truth. Verse 9 reads, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That means Jesus presented himself. Then he stepped into the waters of the Jordan. John plunged him under the waters and then raised him back up again. But you know, according to Matthew's gospel, when Jesus initially presented himself to John for baptism, John refused. John said, no, Lord, you should baptize me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. Now, this is interesting since John did not yet know for certain who the Messiah was. But John clearly had an inkling 
of who it could be. In fact, John already knew a number of things about Jesus. You see, John's mother and Jesus' mother were cousins. And so they already had a family connection. Undoubtedly, John the Baptist had heard the stories from Mary and Joseph, passed down to his parents, and then to him. He had heard the stories about Jesus' miraculous conception and his virgin birth. He had undoubtedly heard the the words of the angel Gabriel as, as Gabriel spoke to Mary and Joseph about Jesus. Besides that, John had probably spent many years bumping into Jesus. He had noticed that Jesus never committed any sin. John knew that he was guilty of sin. And so all of this is swirling around in John the Baptist's mind. And this is what made him hesitant to baptize Jesus. Whoever Jesus was, John knew he was a better man than him. John was a sinner. This man was not. And so he says to Jesus, No, no, you baptize me. Don't let me baptize you. But then Jesus replied with these words. Jesus said, John, you must baptize me because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And Matthew's gospel tells us that this is what finally causes John to acquiesce. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, he said. Now, what did that mean? Well, friends, let's remember Christ's mission. Christ came into the earth to take on human flesh and stand in the place of sinners. He came to work out for us that perfect righteousness which we could not achieve on our own and to make an all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Now, friends, the first step in that process would have to be identifying himself with those he came to save. He had to show his willingness to fulfill all the righteous demands of God for them. And so that's what Jesus was doing here at his baptism. Jesus was not repenting. Remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. But Jesus was not repenting at his baptism. He had nothing to repent of. He'd committed no sins. But what he was doing was identifying himself with the repentant. He was saying that these repentant sinners, these are my people. And I am come to be their Savior, their Redeemer. So he was stepping into the water of the repentant. He was plunging himself under the water and rising up again, signifying they were his people. He was taking their cause upon himself. He was going to be their Redeemer. And beyond all of that, he was also demonstrating his own perfect obedience to his father's will. This is what his father had called him to do. He would obey. He was also demonstrating his own perfect faith in God's plan. All of which would constitute that perfect righteousness which Jesus would merit, which would be imputed to us the moment we believe. And then it happened. John baptized Jesus. And then after Jesus was raised up out of the water, the confirmation promised to John came to pass. Look at verse 10. 
It says, and when he, Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. John the Baptist had been promised this. He said, God had said to him, this is how you'll know who the Messiah is. So Jesus baptized the Messiah, and then the promise came true. The text says the heavens were torn open above their heads. It's as if a portal was established between earth and heaven. And then the Spirit of God descended down out of that portal. It says he descended down like a dove. He did not become a dove. Rather, it means that the Holy Spirit of God came in visible form and very beautifully and very gracefully came down and rested upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit was identifying Jesus as that long-promised Messiah. And he was also empowering Jesus to complete his saving work. We know this because in Luke 4, immediately after the baptism, we're told Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And then after this spiritual anointing, the Father spoke. Verse 11, it says, A voice came from heaven. Here's what it said. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So the Father said to Jesus, you are my beloved Son. This was a declaration of the unique relationship between God and Jesus. It's equivalent to the phrase, only begotten, in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, his, his unique only Son. That's what God was saying at Jesus' baptism. God was publicly affirming here that Jesus is distinct from all others. In a, in a unique way, Jesus is God's beloved. But then he adds, with you, I am well pleased, a statement revealing the Father's delight in Jesus. Here in Jesus, we have God's perfect, sinless Son, and more than that, God's exceeding joy. This is my Son, my beloved one the one in whom my soul delights. My friends, this is the one who came to reverse the effects of sin's curse for us. The one who volunteered to take on the guilt of our sins, to make an all-sufficient payment for them. The one who committed himself to earning the righteousness which would be imputed to us that we might have a right standing before God none other than the beloved Son of God Himself, the one in whom God delights. The most precious man who ever walked this earth. Friends, let's sing of all of these truths together now. The last hymn before the elements are served, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we sing two verses of the hymn, Across the Lands. So in presenting himself to John the Baptist, we see Jesus' determination to begin his public ministry, ministry that would culminate in his death and resurrection. But then in receiving John's baptism, 
we see his determination to take the cause of repentant sinners upon himself, to identify with them, to, to take them to himself, to be their redeemer. But friends, I trust as we work through the passage, you saw more than just Jesus' determination to save us. Because here we see the work of all three members of the Trinity. We see Jesus' commitment to our redemption. But then we also see the Holy Spirit's commitment to us as He empowered the Son for service. And we, f- we see the Father's commitment to our salvation as He publicly declared His pleasure in His Son. And so, friends, as we partake of the elements together and we remember the dying love of Jesus, let's not forget the love of God the Father and God the Son as well. And just before the men come forward, can we ask ourselves these questions? First, have we come to accept the full identity of Jesus? Have you come to see that Jesus is more than just a prophet He's more than just a moral example to follow. No, He is the eternal Son of God. Come to earth in human flesh so that in this one man we have a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. And this is what qualified Him to be our Savior. Have you seen in Jesus the God-man who lived a life of sinless perfection, who died to take our sins upon Himself, who made an all-sufficient sacrifice for us? and then who rose in power and victory. Have you come in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ? And have you heeded John the Baptist's call to repent of sin and to trust in him? Or are there sins that you know you have, but you've been harboring them? You haven't wanted to let them go. They are your gods, not the God of heaven. Are you ready to repent of that, to turn fully and completely to God through the Lord Jesus Christ? My friends, have you thanked Christ for his willingness to identify with sinners? Have you thanked him for his willingness to fulfill all righteousness for your sake? Have you thanked God the Father for his love in sending the Son? Have you thanked the Holy Spirit for his love in empowering the Son for his work? Have you followed the example of Christ and submitted yourself to baptism? Have you embraced your calling as a disciple of Christ? Are you a vital part of his church? Are you walking worthy of your calling? If your answer to these questions is, I'm not perfect, I'm not without sin, but yes, by God's grace, these things have become true of me. If your conscience is clear, then please, please partake of the elements today. Celebrate your union with Christ and his people. And friend, if you hear these questions and your conscience condemns you, then please, Settle those matters today. While others are eating the bread and drinking from the cup, would you offer a prayer to God of repentance and faith? Would you accept Christ so that next time you might celebrate your union with Him? Well, now let's have the ushers come forward and distribute the bread. The scriptures tell us that on the very night in which he was betrayed, our Lord first took bread, and then he gave thanks. So I'm going to ask Pastor Scott if he would please take the microphone and thank God for the bread before us today. Father, we're so grateful today, just for this opportunity to remember 
to reflect upon the sacrificial substitutionary death of our Savior. We know what sent him to the cross. It was us, our sins. I pray for each one in this room, Father. I trust that each one of us has bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. And that even during this time of remembering what he has done, those who do not know Christ will run to him, and those of us who do will recommit our lives to him. Thank you for what Jesus has done. We ask these things in his name. Amen. then in the same way, our Lord took the cup also, and he gave thanks. So now I'm going to ask Matt Domzik if he would please take the microphone and thank God for the cup that we have before us. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your love for us. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to go to the cross. We're so thankful for the Father sending you. Lord, we're so thankful that you remain with us today, allowing us to live victoriously. Lord, I pray that you'd help each here this morning to recognize, Lord, that you are worthy and help us to be faithful to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 